Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the special revelation that you have given us. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices to try to figure out on our own human wisdom and our imaginations these eternal truths that you have given to us. We ask that you will use this Bible study this evening to help us to appreciate even more the precious truths that are given in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do we believe the Bible is the Word of God? When we say that we believe in the Bible, we not only have to contend with those who openly declare that they don't believe in the Bible, but increasingly we find that we have to contend with the many silly ideas, increasingly silly ideas, an increasing number of them, of the people who do claim that they believe in the Bible. It became very popular for liberal Christians to say, well, the Bible is not the word of God. It merely contains the word of God. In other words, some parts of it are the word of God, but other parts not so much. And then there are people like Jim Wallace who call themselves red letter Christians. And they say, I just go strictly by the words of Jesus and I pretty much ignore the rest. The uh, neo-Orthodox told us that, well, the Bible by itself isn't the word of God. But when the reader has a spiritual experience, then it becomes the word of God for him. That's where we get this idea about, well, I have my truth and you have your truth and we're all just happy as clams. And then, of course, the emergence tell us that, yes, we do have the scripture, but we can't really know for sure what it means. We can't make any definitive statements about what is truth and what is error. Charles Ryrie, uh, the author of the book Basic Theology, explains why it's no longer sufficient to just say, I believe in the Bible. You have to specify what exactly do you believe about the Bible? He said this, while many theological viewpoints would be willing to say that the Bible is inspired, one finds little uniformity as to what is meant by inspiration. These differences call for precision in stating the biblical doctrine. Formerly, all that was necessary to affirm one's belief in full inspiration was the statement, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. But when some did not ex extend inspiration to the words of the text, it became necessary to say, I believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. Many people began to say, well, God did give the writers of the Bible the basic general ideas of what he wanted, but he left it up to them and their fallible humanness to kind of flesh in the details. So what they say may or may not be true. So we have to state that God did give them exactly what he wanted to give them, what he wanted them to say. To counter the teaching that all parts of the Bible were inspired, one had to say, I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. The word plenary just means that all of it's inspired, not just some of it, but all of it. Then, because some did not want to ascribe total accuracy to the Bible, it was necessary to say, I believe in the verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant inspiration of the Bible. <laughs> but then, infallible and inerrant began to be limited to matters of faith only, rather than um, embracing all that the Bible records, including historical facts, uh, genealogies, accounts of creation, etc. 
So it became necessary to add the concept of unlimited inerrancy. Each addition to the, to the basic statement arose because of an erroneous teaching. So it's no longer enough to say, I believe in the Bible. In 1978, a group of evangelical scholars met in Chicago to write what became known as the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. The statement itself is several pages long, so I won't go through the whole statement, but this is the essence of the statement. This is the essence of what Christians believe about the Bible. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. So some people are willing to say, well, the Bible is God's word in matters of faith and practice, but as far as history and science, well, not so much. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, all of it. The Bible is a collection of books that are fixed in their number. There aren't new books being added to the Bible. Divine in their origin. It isn't just the ideas of men about God. And universal in their authority. It's not, I have my truth, you have your truth. It's for everybody. When the Bible makes these claims, we believe that they are true. When the prophets of the Old Testament say over and over again, this is what the sovereign Lord says, we believe that really is what the Lord says. When Jesus said to his disciples, the spirit will guide you into all truth, we believe that the apostles and their associates were guided by the Holy Spirit in writing the New Testament. When Paul said that we don't speak in the words of men, the wisdom of men, we speak in words taught by the Spirit. We believe that that is really true. When Peter said that the message was not cleverly invented myths, but were eyewitness accounts, we believe that they really were eyewitness accounts. When John said, we proclaim what we have seen and heard, we believe that that is true, that they really did proclaim what they saw as eyewitnesses. We believe that faith is not a leap into the dark, but a step into the light. I like acronyms. They help me to remember things. So when I think about the evidence in support of the Bible, I think about the acronym MAP, M-A-P. MAP stands for Manuscript Evidence, archaeological evidence and prophetic evidence. So tonight I'm going to look at the manuscript evidence and some of the archaeological evidence and then next time that we meet I'll look at the rest of the archaeological evidence and then the most compelling evidence of all the prophetic evidence. And remember that the next time that we meet is December 10th. Next time this class meets is December 10th. There's a couple week interruption in here for Thanksgiving and for corporate prayer. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at the manuscript evidence, the archaeological evidence, 
And then next week we'll look at the prophetic evidence also. First of all, the manuscript evidence. We're going to look at both the internal evidence of the manuscripts themselves, and then we're going to look at the external evidence, what other ancient writers said about the events and the people that are described in the Bible, in the New Testament. So first of all, we're going to look at the internal evidence. We're going to compare the New Testament with other ancient writings and see how it compares with them. We're going to look at the time gap between the time that the books were actually written and the earliest copies that we have of them. We're going to see how the New Testament stacks up against other writings. And we're also going to consider the number of, of copies of these other documents out of the New Testament. So th- this is a chart of other ancient writings and also of the New Testament. So you see we have the author, the book, the date written, the earliest copies, and then the time gap between the date that the book was written and the earliest copies that we have of it. And then over at the far right, you'll see my, uh, the number of copies. So if we look at Homer here, Homer's Iliad, it was re- originally written around 800 BC. But the earliest copies that we have of Homer's Iliad are from about 400 BC. So that means there's a time gap of 400 years between the time the book was written and the time that uh, the, the earliest copies that we have were written. With Herodotus, it's even more extreme in his history. It was written sometime between 480 and 425 BC. The earliest copies that we have are from 900 AD. So that's a, a gap of 1,350 years. We look at Plato. The writings of Plato were written sometime around 400 BC. The earliest copies that we have are 900 AD. So that means a time gap of about 1,300 years between the time that, that Plato wrote and the time that the earliest copies that we have were written. Demosthenes, he wrote about 300 BC. The earliest copies we have are from 1100 AD. So that's a a time gap of what, 1400 years? Caesar, Julius Caesar, Gallic Wars were written sometime between uh, 144 BC. The earliest copies are from 900. So we have a a gap of 1000 years between the, the time that the book was written and the earliest copies we have. With Livy, History of Rome, written between 59 BC and 17 AD. We have a partial copy from the 4th century, but mostly 10th century. So take your pick. It's 400 years or 1,000 years. Tacitus, Annals, 100 AD. The earliest copies we have are from 1100 AD. So once again, there's a gap of 1,000 years. Pliny Secundus, Pliny the Younger, Natural History, A.D. 61 to 113 A.D. The earliest copies we have are from 850, a gap of 750 years. With the New Testament, the the difference is striking. 
it used to be that uh, liberal scholars thought that the New Testament, they told us the New Testament was written in the second or third century, long after the events that it described. And they said that none of the New Testament books were written by eyewitnesses. But now even the, the liberal scholars are admitting that the New Testament was written much earlier than that. And there's no reason why it couldn't have been written by eyewitnesses. So it was written sometime, It was written between 50 and 100 AD. Even, even liberal scholars are admitting that now that it was written in the first century. And the really striking thing is when you compare the number of copies, the New Testament was written very close to the time that it was, was uh, that the events occurred, especially when you compare it with all of the other ancient writings. And when you compare, look at the number of copies, it's even more striking. So with Homer, we have a whopping 643 copies, ancient copies. With these other works, we have many, many fewer copies, 8, 7, 8, 8, 7 200, 10, uh, 19 complete copies of, of Livy, Tacitus, 20 copies, 7 copies of Pliny the Younger. But when you get to the New Testament, you see 5,366. But this table was compiled in um, 1999. Since that has happened, many more copies, ancient manuscripts of the New Testament have been discovered. They're constantly being discovered, more of them. As of today, the count is up to about 5,800 copies of the New Testament. Uh, Daniel Wallace is, is doing a, has undertaken a remarkable project. Whenever he finds out about a new discovery of, of an ancient uh, manuscript of the New Testament, he wants to, to photograph it. So he travels all over the world copying, every, photographing every, uh, every uh, copy of every manuscript of the New Testament that he learns about. Because obviously, um, like all of us, these manuscripts aren't getting any younger. So they're, they're deteriorating. So he wants, to, he wants to have a photographic record of all of the manuscripts. So when we look at the manuscript evidence, the internal evidence of the manuscripts themselves, the New Testament stacks up very well against other ancient writings. But the, the historians are not constantly racked by doubt about whether Plato actually existed or Julius Caesar actually existed. And they, and they, don't, they don't seem to wonder if these uh, manuscripts, even though the copies are very late, if they accurately reflect, reflect the originals. But somehow when it comes to the Bible, that becomes an issue. And I think you can figure out why that is. But now let's look at the external evidence. We'll look at what other ancient writers, contemporary or shortly after the New Testament, what they said about the life of Jesus Christ and about the, uh, the events that are described in the New Testament. Remember now, this is totally external from the New Testament. So some of the writers that we're going to look at are Tacitus, Suetonius, Josephus, Thallus, Pliny the Younger again, and we're going to look at the Jewish Talmud, and finally at uh, a Greek writer, Lucian. This is what t uh, Tacitus had to say about the events described in the New Testament. 
Remember now, he's not commenting about the New Testament. He's just commenting about historical events. Tacitus um, was a Roman historian. He's been called the greatest historian of ancient Rome. And this is what he had to say. Consequently, to get rid of the report, he's talking about the report of the fire that occurred in Rome, the city of Rome, Nero, the emperor, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, which is a, a Latinized form of the, of the Greek word Christos, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So he commented about the fact that there, Christians, there were Christians that existed in Rome, and he commented about the fact that Jesus did actually die, was, was executed during the reign of Tiberius under Pontius Pilate. This is Suetonius, who was the secretary of the Emperor Hadrian. He was another Roman historian. He said, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he calls him, he, meaning Emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. So we know that the Jewish community in Rome was deeply divided about whether this Jesus Christ was actually the Messiah. And the emperor, Claudius, got so tired of dealing with this dispute that he finally just expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And incidentally, two of the Jewish people who were expelled from Rome, we later encounter in the book of Acts, Priscilla and Aquila. They were Jews who were expelled from Rome. Later on, the... Uh, the Jews returned to the city of Rome. They were probably expelled for 10 years or less once uh, the Emperor Claudius calmed down. So, uh, so Paul could write his letter to the Romans. This is from Josephus. Now this comment from Josephus has become very controversial. It's become controversial as to whether he said it and what exactly he said. Um, the Josephus was, of course, the first century Jewish historian. Um, as I said, this has become quite controversial. Uh, historian Paul Meyer has uh, reconstructed what he thinks the, the actual quote from Josephus was originally. And this is, this is his version of what the quote would have been. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. And his contact, conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, 
has not disappeared to this day. So the, the uh, statement of Josephus about Jesus that has come down to us, uh, it is thought, was probably uh, altered by later Jewish, or excuse me, later Christian writers. But they have discovered earlier copies that uh, weren't tampered with, so that's why they've reconstructed what it actually said. Because the, the Christian writers had apparently altered it so that into a statement that Josephus couldn't have made that statement because it's too strong of a statement. He couldn't have made that statement unless he actually became a Christian uh, because he's actually asserting that Jesus is the Messiah. He probably didn't do that. He probably just stated that he was perhaps the Messiah and told us about him because there's no evidence that Josephus ever, ever became a Christian. This is from another historian, another uh, Roman historian. He wrote a history of the Eastern Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean world. And he actually talks about the darkness and the earthquake that occurred at the time of Christ's crucifixion. On the whole, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness. And the rocks were rent by an earthquake. And many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. So there's an independent confirmation of what, what we are told in the New Testament Gospels. This is Pliny the Younger. He was the governor of the province, province of Bithynia in Asia Minor. And he's talking about the Christians, the Christians in his province. They, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, he says, when they sang an alter, in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to, to deliver it up. So that's what Pliny the Younger is saying about the Christians in his province. It's, it's notable that he says that they uh, sang a hymn to Christ as to a God. So uh, contrary to what, to what many liberals believe, uh, Jesus Christ did not become God. He, he was from the very beginning. This is from the Talmud, the, the Jewish Talmud. Now, obviously, the writers of the Talmud didn't think very highly of Jesus. But they do admit this. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshua, Yeshu, was hanged. So they do admit that he was crucified at that time of year, the Passover, just as the New Testament says. Uh, just as an aside, a little bit about the Talmud. There are actually two Talmuds. There's a, a Jerusalem Talmud and a Babylonian Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud, and that's, that's kind of a misnomer because it wasn't really written in Jerusalem. It was written up north in Tiberias. But that was written about 375 A.D. And the Babylonian Talmud was written about 500 A.D. Um, but the, both Talmuds, essentially what the, what the Talmud is, is a commentary 
and the commentary on the commentary. Uh, if, if you look at a page of the Talmud, in the center of the page, there's the Mishnah. And then around the, the, the uh, passage from the Mishnah, there are the, the commentaries. That's called the Gemara. So that, that's, the Mishnah is actually a, a compilation of what was called the Oral Law. And that was written sometime between 135 and 200 A.D. The, the, as the Jewish people were dispersed all over the world, eventually the, the, the Jewish scholars realized if we don't write this down, it's going to be lost. So they committed it to writing at that, at that point in time. And there are mentions in the Talmud of Yeshua or Jesus, although not very flattering ones, of course. This is from Lucian, who was a second century Greek satirist. He spoke derisively of Jesus and, and the early Christians. He said, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. So once again, he's, he's telling us that there, there were Christians, that they worshiped a man called Jesus, and that he was crucified because of his teachings. So when we look at the external evidence, there are some important, th important things that we can learn. Now remember, this is external evidence, completely outside of the New Testament. But even from the external evidence, from the secular evidence, there's something, some important things that we can learn. We learn that there was a man called Jesus Christ who lived in first century Palestine. He was considered a wise, virtuous man, a wise, virtuous, and ethical man. At least by some, he was. Because of his teachings, he was executed by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. His followers believed that he rose from the dead and that he was regarded as God. Followers believe that, that he rose from the dead and was regarded as God. And this is especially important. No contemporary writer was able to say that Jesus' body was still in the tomb. Now, normally an argument from silence is not a very good argument. But remember now that these are hostile witnesses. If, there was, if they could demonstrate that the body was still in the tomb, they had every reason to do so. The fact that they didn't, that they couldn't, is very significant. Next, we'll look at the archaeological evidence. The archaeology of the Bible has been a, a special area of interest to me for, for many years. So I could talk all night about this, but I promise I won't. I'll just, I'll just hit some highlights. We'll cover some of the archaeological evidence tonight, and then we'll cover some more uh, next week. Or not next week, but next time we meet. By the way, it has been said that if a woman wants to be appreciated throughout her life, she should marry an archaeologist. Because the older she gets, 
the more interested he becomes. <laughs> Whenever people say to us, there is no archaeological evidence that person mentioned in the Bible ever existed. There's no evidence that he ever lived. Or when they say to us, there is no archaeological evidence that incident mentioned in the Bible ever occurred. Whenever they say that to us, we can answer that with just one little three-letter word. One little three-letter word. That word is yet. No evidence has been discovered yet. And the reason I say that is because we've seen this happen time and time again. We'll begin with the, uh, the king who never existed. Well, first, first of all, I want to say this. When we're thinking about archaeology in the Bible, this is an important principle to remember. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. In other words, just because no evidence has been found yet, that doesn't mean that none exists or that none will ever be found. And to illustrate that, let's begin by looking at the king who never existed. That's, that would be King Sargon. This is just a list of the, of the various uh, archaeology topics that we'll cover. We'll cover just some of them this, tonight, and the others we'll cover next, next time. But first we'll begin with this king who never existed, King Sargon. There's only one verse in the entirety of the Bible that talks about King Sargon. That would be Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Syria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. Historians and archaeologists knew of no King Sargon. So skeptics of the Bible said there never was any King Sargon. That's just the name that Isaiah made up. That's not reality. There was no King Sargon. But then in 1843, a man named Paul Boda was excavating at Korsabed, near the ancient city of Nineveh, in what is today northern Iraq. It's probably under the control of ISIS now. In northern Iraq, he, he, he uncovered an enormous palace complex and a library that contained 3,000 clay tablets. This belonged to an ancient king whose name was, you guessed it, Sargon. This is a picture of Sargon. This is a, a stone relief of him on the right with his son Sennacherib. So he was this king that, that never existed. Except that now he does exist. We know. So skeptics of the Bible don't talk about King Sargon anymore. <laughs> if you go to the British Museum in London today, you will see these huge stone, they're carved in stone, they're human-headed winged bulls that once guarded the entrance of the palace of King Sargon. These bulls are 15 feet high. 
and they weigh 10 tons apiece. 10 tons apiece. And I have to admit that's pretty good for a king who never existed. <laughs> From the king who never existed, we'll go to the decree that was never issued. At the beginning of Luke chapter 2, we read about this decree. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Skeptics of the Bible, critics of the Bible said, oh, come on. No Roman emperor would have issued a decree requiring everybody to go back to their hometown. That just, that's preposterous. That never happened. But then in 1905, a decree was discovered in Egypt. The, the, beginning, the beginning of the decree reads like this. From the prefect of Egypt, Gaius Bibius Maximus, being that the time has come for the house-to-house -house census, it is mandatory that all men who are living outside of their districts return to their own homelands that the census may be carried out. This decree has been dated to AD 104, the time of the Emperor Trajan. And it's very similar to the decree that was issued in the, in the uh, second chapter of Luke by Augustus Caesar. So even though we haven't found that exact decree from Caesar Augustus, we do know for a fact that such decrees were issued from time to time in the Roman Empire. So it's not at all a stretch to believe that Joseph and Mary returned to their hometown <clears throat> of Bethlehem before the birth of Christ. This is a clay tablet containing this epic of Gilgamesh. What is the significance of the epic of Gilgamesh? Skeptics had claimed that there was no archaeological evidence to support the biblical story of a worldwide flood. In 1853, archaeologists discovered the palace of Assurbanipal, Assyria's last king. There they uncovered a library of clay tablets. Tablet 11 includes a story similar to the flood story in Genesis 6 through 9. Stories uh, get garbled when they're filtered through paganism, but there are some key elements of the story that are worth, worthy of note. The epic tells of a great flood brought on earth by the wrath of the gods and includes a hero who is told to build a ship, to take every kind of animal along, and to use birds to check if water had receded. So the, the biblical flood story does come through even, even through this pagan story. By the way, we have learned since that time that nearly every culture all around the world has this story, this legend about a great flood. So even though it's in the Bible, other people, other peoples and other cultures know of the story. This is the Renapta Stila. The significance of this 
Renaptostella from, from uh, Egypt. The Renaptostella contains the earliest extra-biblical mention of the name Israel, thus far known. The Egyptian pharaoh brags of a victory over Israel that's been dated to around 1230 BC. So he talks about Israel in this, in this stone monument. Although this battle between Egypt and Israel is not mentioned in the Old Testament, the stela does show that the Israelites were in fact living in the promised land at that time and that their entrance into the land had already taken place by 1230 BC. So we know that there was an Israel and that they were living in the promised land by this time. Next, we'll take a look at the walls of Jericho. We know that there were actually two sets of walls surrounding Jericho. So if attackers made it over the first wall, then they had to clamber up this steep slope all the time that uh, the defenders above them were raining down rocks and arrows and hot oil and all kinds of pleasant stuff. They had to clamber up that steep slope and then get to the second wall. And it, as, uh, as it says here, the, the walls were thick, six feet thick and about 20 to 26 feet high each. So the second wall was 46 feet above the uh, ground level. So it was quite a, quite a daunting fortress to, to capture. Now here you see an artist's conception of, of the walls beginning to fall down. And you'll notice that the walls are falling outward. If attackers had caused the walls to fall down, they would have pushed them inward. This is uh, archaeologist Bryant Wood at the, uh, the ruins of Jericho. And he confirmed that the walls did indeed fall outward, indicating that it was a supernatural thing and not just a human thing. So the walls of Jericho, Jericho did fall, and they did fall outward. Once again, confirming what the Bible says. The existence of David and Solomon. This is something that's really been disputed by archaeologists. Are you familiar with the terms minimalist and maximalist? Maximus, a maximalist is one as an archaeologist who believes that the Bible pro pro provides us with lots of good information about history in archaeology. A minimalist, on the other hand, thinks that the Bible is pretty much worthless for giving us any accurate information about history and archaeology. So archaeologists who rejected, reject the Bible as an accurate source of historical information claim these are minimalists, claim that if David and Solomon existed at all, they're not sure that they, that they did, but if they existed at all, they were merely petty local chieftains. They couldn't possibly have been powerful kings ruling over an extensive kingdom. Recent archaeological discoveries have shown these claims to be without basis.
This is what, what is called the, da the David inscription of in northern Israel on, on the Golan Heights. This inscription was discovered that actually mention, mentions the house of David. It's talking about one of the later kings that was descended from David, but it refers to him as King so-and-so of the house of David. And in the uh, enlarged portion down below, you can see where it actually uh, refers to David. In 1993, it's talking about this, uh, I'm talking about this uh, inscription now, a, a monumental stella, a stone slab for commemorating important people and events, was discovered at Tel Dan up in the Golan Heights. The significance of the Aramaic inscription is its mention of the house of David. It provides evidence for the existence of King David and his royal dynasty. This is what has come to be known at least it is claimed to be by the Maximalists, the city of David in Jerusalem. This was uncovered just south of the Temple Mount. This huge stepped platform. The stones are stepped, a terrace, so that for, a, for an enormous building on top, and it is believed that that was the, where the palace of David was located. In 2005, Israeli archaeologist Elat Mazar announced that she had uncovered a monumental building in Jerusalem and identified it as King David's palace based on its location and pottery. It was from the time of David. So once again, she, she's a, a maximalist. And to, much to the consternation of the minimalists, she is finding things that support what the Bible says about David. This is Kirbet Kayafa. This is an excavation of, a, of an ancient city. This would be southwest of, of Jerusalem. In 2008, Israeli archaeologist Yosef Garfinkel began excavating ruins at Kirbet Kayafa near the Elah Valley. This is where David had his famous confrontation with Goliath. He has found olive pits and pottery dated to David's time. And once again, this does not look at all like the uh, settlement of a, of a uh, petty local chieftain. Finding two gates, he announced that he had found Sha'arim, city of two gates, mentioned three times in the Bible. King Solomon's Mines. This is, this is actually in Jordan. When we read about the building of the temple, we see that it took enormous quantities of bronze. And this is one of the things that the minimalist poo-poo is, well, where did they get this bronze? They couldn't have had all this bronze. Well, archaeologists in Jordan Archaeologist Thomas Levy of the University of California, he's excavating a large copper production site in Jordan dating to the 10th and 9th century BC. This implies that a complex centralized society existed in Solomon's time. So when we're talking about the 10th and 9th centuries, we're talking about the time of, of David and Solomon and their descendants. 
So this implies that they did have a wide-ranging trading empire that included more, much more than just their local petty chieftains. Now, the subject of the Exodus in the Bible, the archaeology of the Exodus, and the subject of the relationship between ancient Egypt and the Bible is a rather complex issue. So I won't go deeply into that this evening. Um, th this is a subject that, that deserves a, a Bible study all its own. <laughs> so perhaps I can talk about that this spring. Because uh, there, there are some issues that we need to cover before we get into understanding the archaeology of the Exodus. And many of you probably didn't even realize these were issues. <laughs> so it, it does take some time to just to, even to explain what the issues are. But uh, there is a great deal of archaeology about the Exodus, relating to the Exodus, and then also to Shishak, the, uh, the Egyptian pharaoh who raided the temple at the time of, of uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. One of, the, one of the difficulties in the archaeology of the Exodus is that most of the time the Bible doesn't name the pharaoh that it's talking about. It just refers to him as Pharaoh. So it's, it's a challenge to, sometimes to identify which Pharaoh is talking about. The only Pharaoh that I can think of that who's named in the Bible is this Pharaoh, Shishak, that uh, raided the temple in Jerusalem. But even that identification becomes rather controversial because uh, there's no pharaoh in Egyptian history who is called Shishak, so you have to identify which, which pharaoh that's referring to. This is another important archaeological, archaeological discovery, the black obelisk. Because once again, the, the six and a half foot tall black basalt obelisk Basalt is a, a volcanic stone. Reports in pictures and words the conquest of Assyrian king Shalmaneser III, enemy of the Israelites. And one of the uh, kings of Israel, kings of Judah actually, the southern kingdom, King Jehu is pictured on this black obelisk. He, he's the one who's uh, prostrating himself before the, before the king. The black obelisk was discovered in the palace at Nimrud in 1846 and shows the biblical Jehu, king of Israel, kneeling down and bringing tribute to the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser. Dating from 841 BC, this important find is the only picture we have so far of an Israelite king. King Jehu's reign is mentioned in 2 Kings 9 and 10. Here is the, the Cyrus cylinder. You know about this one, don't you, Bob? <laughs> um, after Israel came, was brought back from the captivity in, under the Persians, the Persian Empire, it says that King Cyrus uh, gave them permission to rebuild the temple. Well, 
feet cyber cylinder confirms that. A nine-inch long clay cylinder found at ancient Babylon, dating, dating to 539 BC, tells of King Cyrus of Persia's conquest of Babylon and of his decree to let captives held by Babylon return to their lands and restore their temples. So he not only allowed the Jewish people to go back to their homeland and restore their temple, he allowed this to all of the peoples under his rule. Cyrus sent the Jews back to their homeland after many years of exile in Babylon, as Isaiah prophesied. This return home decree confirms that this was Cyrus' policy and gives credibility to the biblical record. So once again, we find the biblical record confirmed by external evidence. Now, I, I think I will save the... Um, the archaeology of the New Testament till next time. That's what we'll be looking at. And then we'll go on to the, um, the most compelling evidence, the prophetic evidence that we find in the Bible. Most of you are probably familiar with um, the Messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you're probably somewhat aware, or probably quite aware, of the prophecies about Israel that were fulfilled. But you may not be aware so much of the many, many prophecies about the destiny of other nations that are found in the Old Testament and how they were fulfilled to the letter, sometimes in, in great detail. And the, the minimalists, the Bible skeptics, don't, don't want to admit that that could be possible, that you could predict centuries in advance what would happen to nations but in the Bible, that is what exactly what happens. Every year in, in January, you can see the supermarket tabloids telling us what the psychics predict will happen this year. Now, usually what happens is that people quickly forget about what the psychics predicted. But if you save those copies until the end of the year, and then you do an analysis of how many of those predictions actually came to pass, you'll find that it's unusual that even one of them came to pass. But here we have predictions in the Bible, centuries in advance, of what was going to happen. It even predicted what Cyrus's name was going to be. So over and over again, the predictions of the Bible do come to pass, and we'll get into that. So we have a little bit of time left here. Are there any questions or comments about what we've covered? Brian. Under external evidence, yep. would like the hydrology and uh, currents in the ocean, uh, you know, people didn't, the flat earth, people didn't believe that for, you know, yeah. thousands of years. And, and now it wasn't until recent history that yep. the, the, the scientific evidence of around yep. the world, currents, hydrology, yep. and all that, the, the Bible backs that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get into the, the scientific evidence. Okay. That, that's a whole other subject. But um, we find scientific evidence. I mean, it's true that the Bible isn't a science textbook, yeah. but there are many, many comments in the Bible that are scientific. Right. Not only in Genesis, where it's talking about the creation, but, even, but especially in the book of Job. When we, when we look carefully at the book of Job, we, we find thing after thing that 
the Bible predicted, or, uh, the, the biblical writers understood centuries before man understood that. Like um, the uh, concept that the earth was hung on nothing, that there was nothing supporting it. Most ancient cultures had these mythologies about uh, the earth was was supported on the backs of elephants who were in turn supported on the back of a giant tortoise, you know, things like that. Here's the Bible centuries before telling us what, what really was happening scientifically, that the earth was round and that the earth was supported on nothing and telling us about the hydrologic uh, currents and the, the wind currents and all of the things that were that we know now are true. Yes, sir. What about just in general, you know, the living, the Philistines and Persia and Greece and all the Middle Eastern countries that are in the news today and even 50 years ago in that, doesn't that give credibility to the Bible as far as names have changed? Yes. But just in general, if you could count 10, Syria, Lebanon, mm -hmm. you know, all the general things. Just as an yeah. and, and we'll get into that a little bit next time when we talk about the prophetic destinies of, of the nations. Because we'll, we'll see that it happened just exactly the way that God said it would happen, about Egypt and about uh, Tyre and, and so on, about, about all of the nations. And we'll find that it even predicted specifically what would happen to certain cities, which ones would be uninhabited, and which ones would continue to be inhabited, but in, in a much lesser uh, state than they, they were anciently. So it's just remarkable when you compare what happened in history with what the Bible predicted would happen. Yeah, and just one more. Just like the Philistines, now I've heard things where there are no longer any, but now there are still some names have changed. Or um, the Philistines what were apparently part of what was anciently called the Sea Peoples. And so some of them did settle in the Promised Land in Israel, along the coast there. Uh, so, some of the identities of the nations are disputed. I mean, you'll find that different Bible scholars identify them differently. Uh, Nancy. Well, this is a ridiculous question, but oh. being Italian, I've been thinking about these owl pits that were found. Okay. <laughs> Well, uh, this reminds me of Irma Bombeck saying uh, one of her books was entitled If Life is a Bowl of Cherries, What Am I Doing in the Pits? Uh, um, the olive pits, like, like bones, uh, last longer than, say, papyrus. <laughs> Well, they don't have to last hundreds of thousands of years. <laughs> we're, let's see, we're talking in the neighborhood of 1000 BC, so they're 3000 years old, approximately. Yeah, all of this lasts a long time in a, in a dry climate. <laughs> Christy. The, the um, more newly discovered manuscript evidence, yes. um, where are they finding those? Um, you'd have to ask Daniel Wallace. That. <laughs> I assume that they're finding them somewhere around the Mediterranean world. I mean, 
in, in Greece or in, in Egypt or... Yep. Danny, you probably have more data on this than I do, but yep. Dan Wallace will be coming out with a new book very yes. soon where mm -hmm. um, Ryland, the Ryland papyri, yes. papyrus, um, yep. that was our earliest known papyri fragment from yep. the book of John. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, check me if I'm wrong, was that around 125 AD? I, uh, yes, it was. Well, now Dan Wallace, I heard an interview, this is some years ago, it was on the Hugh Hewitt show, I don't know how many listen to that. I, I knew that he had found a fragment, a papyrus fragment that he thought was earlier. So I, I, yeah. I, I've been waiting for him to I know, come out I with that. Too. But yeah. anyway, just to wet everyone's yeah. whistle, it's going to be very early, earlier yeah. than 125 yeah. AD. Well, now you're actually, the, the hint that he gave on the air was that this is going to be within the lifespan of the apostles themselves. Yeah. So very exciting. Um, one question I had for you, Dana, is you know in your studies with archaeology mm -hmm. uh, concerning the Exodus, oh, yeah. is that brought you to, I know there's two different dates typically, the earlier or the later. Yep. And I always have been about 1445 BC. Um, has archaeology confirmed any dates for you or helped you rule out? Well, it, it has. Um, okay. Archaeology in combination with the Bible. Okay. Um, I, I plan to get into this more when I talk about this next spring, if okay, possible. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, just to answer your question. Um, so, so there are two dates that are generally uh, accepted among Christian, evangelical Christian scholars. One is that, that mid-15th uh, century B.C. date, around 1450, you know, whatever, give or take. Uh, and then the other one is, um, is in the 12th century, or excuse me, the 13th century, the 1200s B.C., the 13th century. And this is the way that this is the date that most archaeologists go with, but I don't think they're correct. I think the those who hold to an earlier date are more correct, because here, here's how here's how the Bible enters into this. In the in the sixth chapter of First Corinthians, or excuse First Kings, I should say, in the sixth chapter of First Kings, it's talking about the building of the temple under Solomon. And it says that construction on the temple was begun in the 480th year from the Exodus. Well, if Solomon lived in the 10th century BC, which most scholars think he did, there's no way you can get 480 years from the 13th century BC to the building of the temple. Now, the scholars who do hold to this idea of the, of the 13th century exodus, they try to explain that by saying that, well, 480 years doesn't really mean 480 years. It really means um, 24, or 12, 12 generations, 12 generations of 40 years each. And we know that generations aren't really 40 years. They're really more like 20 years. So that's how they try to shorten that 180 years. Uh, but that's not what the Bible says. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, can't, get, I can't go there. So I, I, go, I opt for the earlier date. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. Uh, One other question. I know um, you, you probably, maybe you'll get this. Sennacherib's prism. Um, did you want to mention that one, too? I always thought... Uh, that was such a fascinating one where Sennacherib, when he launched the invasion against Judah, did you have a...
Um, well, maybe you're going to get to that. I, I, I don't think I am. Okay, all right. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, did, you, did you find that to be a compelling one as well? Or yeah, that? I mean, I, I, had, I couldn't cover everything. No, no, I, mean, I was just wondering. Because I, I had um, 50 archaeological discoveries relating to the Old Testament and 50 relating to the New Testament, but yeah. I couldn't possibly cover them all. So <laughs> if you could just tell everybody about that, what's so amazing about Well, that. go ahead. Uh, well, well, I think what I like oh, about it... Here. Oh, I'm sorry. You gotta have an issue with all this. I'm sorry. I don't well, if you're gonna say something that we want on here, um, Sennacherib laid siege to Judah, and he would always keep a record. And the Assyrians, by the way, when they would um, lay siege, they never lost. <laughs> so, in other words, they would never record their losing, in right? Their own mind. In their own mind, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Only the good news all the time. But he would say we laid siege to such and such um, like Lachish and we took so much booty and he would give a record of it. Well, when he comes to Jerusalem, he meets his Waterloo, so to speak. He ends up um, dying. You know, he ends up having to go home. 180,000 um, of his men perish. And so on that prism, it, it accounts for the fact that he lays siege to Jerusalem, but then it basically is dot, dot, dot. There's nothing after that. And so it corresponds to both Isaiah and... Uh, Is the, it Hezekiah mentioned? Hezekiah mentions the very thing. Yeah, he exactly. said, I had him trapped like a, a, like a bird in a like cage. A but it doesn't say what happened. Exactly. It's dot, dot, uh, dot. Because yeah, the Bible says that the angel of the Lord went out and killed 180,000 of his... Yeah, soldiers. very striking. Again, corresponding to the scripture. So, yeah. Amen. It's yeah. Never mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never mind. We had a we had a bad day. Right, we had a bad day. <laughs> do you want to close us in prayer? I'm not sure. Or do you have more? No, I, that's all I wanted to cover this evening. Unless you have more questions. Building in Jerusalem, and you know, there um, all the stuff going on between the Palestinians and the Jews. Are they discovering archaeological evidence of some of this stuff in some of the? Well, um, what has been happening in, in recent years is, is both good and bad. Uh, see, the, um, the Muslims are expanding the Al-Aqsa Mosque. There's two big structures on, on the Temple Mount, two Muslim structures. There's the Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar. And then it's not really used as a mosque. The one that's used as a mosque is at the south end of the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And they are expanding underneath the Al-Aqsa Mosque, underneath the Temple Mount. So you can imagine how the Muslims are doing this. They're just tearing everything out. They don't care about anything. They're just tearing it out and dumping it. So Israeli archaeologists are sifting through the, the rubbish to find, and they're finding all kinds of things in the rubbish. So that's, that's what's going on currently. So, any other questions? Well, let's, let's close with a word of prayer then. Father, we thank you for each opportunity that we have to meet as your people and to learn more about the amazing, wonderful scriptures that you've provided for us, scriptures that we can trust in and rely upon. We ask that you would help us to reflect on these things and to think about how 
we can share this information with others in our witnessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Yeah.